Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I always invite people to come and play with me. And uh, if they, the subject matter is Calvin, most of them usually look at me with a slight bit of horror, but they will discover that Calvin is also playful or playable or something. So you have the outline. I always go for an outline because it gives me uh, the path that we will all be uh, more or less following. And I put it on the board because that's the way I like to be able to see what I'm doing. Some of this will be review. Uh, and I beg your pardon if I hope I will not bore you with things that are repeats. Uh, but I hope that some of it will give you a different perspective on things you might have met before. Talking about uh, the legacy, it's really, a, or legacies, it's really a difficult thing to do because everything changes over time. And anything that is inherited from an earlier age has also developed through the intervening ages and will not look exactly the same and will not play out in our lives in exactly the same way. So the historian in me says, you're going to have to get a long view of what's going on, the his, some sense of context, some sense of the larger picture in which the reformations happen. And then we'll be able to see a little bit more about what they actually pass on to us or what we have inherited from them, the things that are a, a rich resource, the things which have also uh, led to various kinds of challenges for the church, and so forth. So reforms and reformation, just a, uh, as I said, the brief comment on the fact that there is uh, a lot of uh, history that everybody tells from their own different perspective. So sometimes when we talk about the Reformation, uh, we get Luther and the 95 Theses on, theses on uh, October 31st. Last year, having been the 500th anniversary of that, I did a lot of visiting with Luther in his 95 Theses. But the point is, that's not the whole thing. Uh, and that we often confine our picture of uh, a, an event, a person, anything in history, to the simple outline. We have to do that to start with. So my job is going to be to make it messy, to complicate the picture, uh, to uh, make it a little bit uh, less tidy. What is the Reformation? Starting with uh, talking about what leads up to it, which I call waves of reform. It's important to remember that something like the Reformation doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, it, there is a sense in which the Judeo-Christian tradition is a reforming tradition. Think about the way the prophets uh, interpreted the uh, law, the Torah. There's a sense that we are always interacting with God and with the heritage of our faith and seeing how we don't measure up and how we need to reform uh, our uh, lives, our thought, our uh, actions, whatever it is, to it. In, the, in Western Europe, you could say that this happens from time to time, as it does in other parts of Christian heritage. But from about the 12th century on, there were a series of waves of reform, maybe a, a bishop in this area would decide that he really had to reform the catechetical practices in his diocese, 
Archbishop uh, Peckham in England, for example, or maybe a um, people were worried about a particular uh, problem and thought that they needed to reform preaching in their area, or a religious order uh, decided that they were not keeping their rule the way they should. They should reform, become the observant Augustinians, the ones who are actually observing the rule rather than the others. So there's a sense in which there's an ongoing a wave of reforms, and that's very important uh, to bear in mind because when we come to what we call the Reformation, uh, it doesn't come out of the blue. It is, some people would say, the highest uh, level of a wave building over the, uh, spreading over all of Europe. Uh, some people might say, oh, didn't the Reformation happen because things were getting uh, so bad in the church? Actually not, probably. It probably was a case of uh, people's expectations rising. There were more and more things about the church that they thought needed to be reformed that had, they, maybe their ancestors uh, had been content with or that they hadn't had any means of changing. So it was a sense, there was a sense not that everything is uh, falling apart, but we are now able to perceive things that, that really need to be brought back to uh, an earlier standard or reshaped, reformed one way or another. So what is the Reformation. Well, it is actually notable in itself. There is still a good reason to speak of the Reformation, uh, seeing it even as the, the highest crest of this wave of reforms. Uh, for a couple of reasons, it stands out. One is its sheer extent. It ends up affecting absolutely everyone in Western Europe. None of the earlier reforms, of whatever kind they were, had had that uh, extent. Another factor is it ends up changing the religious map of Western Europe. There are now uh, multiple national churches, uh, as well as other smaller churches, instead of one Christendom, one, one church. And there are new theological ideas or uh, new expressions of theological uh, thought experience which come to the fore. The word justification was not a brand new word, neither was grace nor faith. But they, the issue of justification, how we are made right with God, becomes the burning issue of the age. That is new. That is a, a change in terms of the uh, ways that people uh, re responded to their, uh, the teaching of the church, responded to their sense of the adequacy of how they were uh, to make themselves right with God. Instead of, for example, in the third, fourth century, the question of the Trinity is the burning issue. Pretty much everybody is one way or arguing about that one, one way or another. Different periods, there are different aspects of the faith which really become engaging for everybody, pretty much everybody, so that they d dominate the question of what is theologically significant. So, there are ways then in which the Reformation has a, uh, a validity as a special marker in the church, but it still has to be seen within that continuity because it doesn't, wouldn't have ever happened if there hadn't been uh, a buildup of people both in the clergy and among the laity who felt a need for something more. So it's not outside the church, it's within the church calling for more help or changes. And then I want to say something about reformations. Because when people are 
eager to uh, bring something back to the best way of uh, living or teaching, they're not all going to have the same ideas about exactly what is wrong and what is uh, the right way to uh, reform it. So suppose that you do actually manage to agree that there are lots of problems of ignorance. People just don't know enough. There are problems of uh, moral behavior. People are simply not engaging with what they know how to do. There are problems of uh, theological confusion. Different people think different things are essential for salvation, and they're disagreeing. There are problems uh, of how we actually embody the church. Do we need uh, all those beautiful altar uh, paintings and stained glass windows? Or is there something else that would be more honoring to God, like uh, dowries for uh, poor girls or apprenticeships for destitute boys and so forth? So you've got a sense in which there's a strong sense that we need to work together to make the church different but, or to improve it, but we haven't got clear agreement on exactly what is wrong or, more importantly, which are the symptoms and which are the disease. If you think that the problem of ignorance is based on the fact that people uh, don't have access to education, you're going to address the problem one way. If you think the problem is that they're really being taught the wrong thing, the ignorance isn't going to be uh, the real problem. The problem is going to be that what they are getting is uh, wrong. So you've got a whole variety of, uh, one way you can see it is people are eager to make themselves right with God, to be in right relationship with God, and to make the church reflect that. But they don't all agree on exactly what's wrong or more importantly, what it's going to look like and how you're going to get to a reformed state. So it's important to realize that there are multiple forms. Uh, Catholic reform within the Catholic community too. Lots of people uh, who did not leave the Catholic Church were continuing the reforms of the late medieval. Uh, the waves of reform, you know, the, the in interest in having a, uh, the church uh, more uh, follow its uh, ideals more. They didn't feel like they needed to break with uh, the church that they were in. They needed to work at it. So there's reform within the Catholic uh, communion. For example, the church in 1500 and the church in 1700 really did not look quite the same way. There were significant observable differences in how Catholics, Roman Catholics carried out what their understanding of the Christian life was between the late medieval and the modern. I'm not going to be able to pay very much attention to that right now, but I just want to point to it so that when we talk about reformations, it's all across the board. The ones we know best are Protestants. And maybe I should say here, I'm not going to go into this at great length because you know this better, but to point to these as the people, for example, who really were convinced that the church was God's church. It needed reforming, but they got to the point that they concluded they couldn't do it from the inside. They were going to have to break with the external structure in order to carry on the purifying of uh, the church. They don't doubt that it is God's church, but it's really got a very, very messy uh, style of living, uh, mud on its face. It really needs to be reformed. To talk about the Anabaptists, this would be another branch. Protestants ends up breaking with Rome because 
they are, feel that they're pushed into it. They don't have any other choice in order to continue the reforming of the church. You could say that the Anabaptists are those for whom Rome has ceased to be the church. It is not living out any aspect of what they understand to be the church. For practical purposes, they think the church isn't visible anywhere on earth again, anymore. That's a different position. That's not a case of we're being pushed to uh, leave the church because we can't make it change from within. That says the church isn't there. We are going to have to start over again, wanting to implement what the teaching of Acts is. We're going to restore the church. We're not trying to reform it. It's not, there's no form there to be reformed. We're going to restore it. So you've got then a whole variety of things happening, all aimed at making uh, a church and a world and Christians who will correspond to what God wants. But they don't come out looking the same. So a quick reminder about the context <clears throat> or about, about uh, methodologies. As I'm sure you all know, everybody who writes a history tells a story a little bit differently. Think about it. They've got different perspectives. They may have different information. Uh, they may have different purposes. Say, books about Lincoln by his son, by a freed slave, by a political opponent, by a historian who's examining how the um, presidents who've been president during war carried out their jobs. You know, you've got, even if they're all carefully using their resources, even if they're all being honest and thoughtful, you're going to get lots of different perspectives on what's actually there. So telling the stories of the Reformation then, you have to realize that there are going to be lots of different uh, perspectives, lots of different stories being combined. So what I'm giving you is just my mix-up of the various ideas. Anytime that you do an outline of something, you have to choose not what to leave out, but what can I put in? Because there's so much that could be said. How can I make sense of all these different histories without of falsifying it. What I'm going to tell you is actually not real history in one sense, because every bit of what I say could be contradicted in detail from one perspective or another. But what I'm going to do is try to give you a picture, and then you can start tearing it apart and looking for the other details. It's also uh, turning points in tell telling a story. Every story has turning points as well as perspective. Think about it. If you were talking about the uh, history of transportation. Did it ever occur to you that uh, Caesar and Napoleon traveled at the same rate? From the time of the domestication of the horse until the invention of steam, movement on land was at the same pace. So if you're telling the story of transportation, you've got a way long uh, section of time before you get to the first major turning point, or the or modern turning point, steam. And then it begins to, to proliferate in all kinds of changes. But so what is the story we're telling? What kind of turning points make sense? Uh, if your story is uh, about uh, perspective and painting, well, the, 60, the Renaissance is going to be an uh, important time. Why? Because that's the point at which what they begin to think about perspective in terms of, oh, that person is in the picture further back, therefore it'll be smaller. This person uh, is closer to the viewer, so the person will be larger. Instead of having a perspective on painting, that you put the most important person, the biggest. And then it's a question of how 
uh, the size corresponds to their importance, not to perspective. So that's going to be a turning point in the history of painting. For the uh, Reformation, one of the major turning points of our historical looking at this would be what we call the Renaissance, the rebirth of learning. That's actually where we get the, the, the idea of the Dark Ages as well, as well as the beginning of history. The Renaissance humanists were uh, had enchanted when they rediscovered the writings of the Greco-Roman world. Oh, look at this piece of Cicero. What beautiful Latin. But look at what we've been hearing all around us all this time, this, this church Latin. Remember, when a language is a spoken language, it becomes less and less uh, precise in certain ways. If, if you've got lots of inflections on the endings, uh, they will sort of uh, smash together because most people don't keep up with a very highly inflected language. Think about today. I've given up worrying about whether people split infinitives uh, or, put pre or put prepositions at the end of the sentence. You, you, there's no point in arguing over that anymore because uh, it doesn't make any difference. But the Latin, the Latin spoken language was a Latin that people used, but it had become uh, degenerate. These humanists who had just discovered Cicero and his friends said, oh, that's beautiful. What we've been hearing around us is barbaric. So they're the ones who invent the idea of the Dark Ages, because we have just been passing through Dark Ages. Look what they spoke. Dreadful. This is also significant, though, from not just from the point of view of their arrogance, but from the point of view of history, because this is the point at which they begin begin to perceive that history actually marks changes in society. For most of the uh, traditional world, for, for centuries and centuries, people wrote chronicles, not histories. Chronicles are, you know, this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. But there's no sense of a progression. And here I'm not talking about getting better and better. I'm just talking about a progression or movement or change. There's no sense that our ancestors lived in any different world or culture than ours. When you, because there's no uh, perception of change. There's no uh, awareness of change. But you could say that this perception of, of a historical development or of historical progression begins when the humanists look at the comparison between the beautiful classical Latin and the medieval functional Latin. Oh, there's a difference. Now, the first generation are at first just so excited with all the beautiful uh, Latin that they're reading that they just concentrate on it. By the second generation, they've gotten used to having this wonderful Latin, and they're beginning to attack the uh, barbaric Latin and the uh, scholastic uh, teaching that is done in this barbaric Latin. And by the third generation, uh, or I should say the, the, but the second generation then is saying, uh, look, we're reading this whole treatise of Augustine. And you've only, in your textbook, you've only given a few little quotations. That's, that's not worthwhile. You know, don't, don't bother with all those little tiny uh, bits and pieces that you've gathered. Go back and read the real thing. Read the a whole book. So the second, you could say the second, second generation of humanists have gotten used to the beauty of the Latin, and now they're looking at the content. They're reading it as literary text. You know, read the whole thing. See what it is in context. See the beautiful rhetoric. Well, by the time you get to the third generation, They've gotten used to the, the beauty of the, the books and reading the whole thing through. And they're starting to say, oh, but Augustine doesn't end up with the same theology that you did. Now, now we're not just saying that, 
uh, it's more exciting and enriching to read the whole Augustine. Now we're saying that your little quotation from Augustine does not actually reflect what Augustine meant. So you could see that over time, you get a, a changing uh, sense about the uh, value or the uh, worthwhileness of the theological teaching, which didn't start out necessarily as an attack, but started out as a comparison. Oh, but when you compare the old theology textbooks with reading all of Augustine, you can see the difference. So you get also another sense of historical difference and historical progression. So part of this uh, is the changing context. Uh, so Reformation. One thing to say, uh, Reformation is the term that we've used uh, for a period. But if you stop and think about it, other things are happening besides the religious reform that we tend to uh, call Reformation. There is technological change. There are various kinds of uh, other cultural and uh, industrial type changes. There, there are other things going on. Does the Reformation then constitute the best way to describe this whole period? In many ways, the Reformation is really important as the religious designation of the period. But it's not this whole thing that's happening. In that context, then, Scholars have started talking about the early modern world. In other words, the world in which this religious movement is happening extends beyond just the religious movement. So you could say the Reformation is a part of the early modern world, uh, but it is not the entire thing if we're talking about the Reformation as a religious movement. And one more thing to say about the background. The, some people are read the Reformation, talking about the perspective of history changing uh, patterns. Some people read the Reformation, uh, 19th century uh, liberals, for example, looked back at Luther and said, ah, look at that marvelous individual standing up to the church. Here I stand. I can do no other. You know, the, the rugged individual, the, the beginning of the modern world, where we have such a strong sense of ourselves as individuals. Well, as historians have examined uh, this period more and more and looked back at more of what's happening in the late Middle Ages and through the early modern period. And they said, you know, Luther really wasn't an individualist. He had a very strong perception of his personal religious experience. But that's not the same thing as our modern individualism. Uh, maybe we really need to say that this period isn't actually the beginning of the modern world. It's, there's more continuity between the late medieval and the early modern than we've often perceived. And if you want to find the beginning of the modern world, it really is probably the 18th century enlightenment, a, a different perspective on uh, separation of church and state, individualism, uh, industrial revolution, a whole number of things which have reshaped our modern world in some ways as a society more than the Reformation. Now, the Reformation clearly reshaped our religious understanding. There's no question about that. But if we're talking about historical periods, then the Reformation is a part of the early modern world, not the modern world. Maybe all that is not necessary, but part of what I'm trying to do is mess up the picture a little bit to show uh, us that we, when you're living in history, you're actually living in a stream. You never step into it the same, the same stream again. 
Uh, and to understand it, to make some sense of it, uh, we have to realize that other people living uh, through it were also uh, living in a moving world that had many continuities, but also had other discontinuities. We tend to focus on the discontinuities, so I'm trying to point to some of the continuities so that we have a better sense of what our uh, Reformation people were doing. So talk a bit more about, talk about legacies then. One of the things that is particularly significant about this whole early modern period is the development of humanism and the whole cultural uh, intellectual world that's changing. Humanism, uh, many people think of it as a human-centered universe, but actually a better understanding is an intellectual or pedagogical revolution. And I've already described it in some sense. Uh, the humanists rejected the medieval textbook idea of education. They wanted to read the originals, go back to the sources. Well, of course, when they read the originals, they fell in love with the Latin. Uh, then they began to compare what they read with, with the textbooks and said, no, we don't want that. So from the point of view of the um, educational establishment, the universities thought the humanists were bad news. They're just coming in to, to tear up all of our long traditions of education and they're the enfants terribles of our, of our society now. Right now, it, the theologians were said, and you started this just in order to attack our theology. No, so that, that really wasn't what the humanists were trying to do, but that's one of the end products. Because you, Protestants end up being that third generation of humanists, the ones who have now studied the original writings of Augustine all the way through and are comparing that to the medieval uh, theological textbook and saying, that's not what Augustine meant. What you're teaching is not true. It's not what you say it is. Uh, along with humanism, this urban growth and lay literacy. In the early Middle Ages, the form of education would have been, if you are a, a warrior, how to fight. If you are a peasant, how to farm. How much do you need reading and writing for that? So people were educated, but they were educated according to what was important and necessary for their society. However, uh, and there's, there are virtually no cities, there are very few cities. The uh, Roman Empire had had cities. It had been a cosmopolitan world. But in Europe, after the Germanic invasions, cities just sort of diminished, dissolved, because the Germanic pattern of, of polity was family-oriented, uh, tribal-oriented. They wanted to live on their property, their manners. Uh, it was feudal. They didn't need cities. They weren't interested in uh, talking with people of other languages or other faiths. They weren't cosmopolitan. They were very clearly uh, oriented toward understanding, uh, to the understanding that their community was homogeneous. It fit together in a very nice uh, package on the land. However, by the time you get to the high Middle Ages, the 12th, 13th centuries, you're, especially the people who are coming back from Asia, from the Crusades, Europe was not a particularly civilized place in lots of ways. We might think of, of them as having a, a pretty country hick kind of, of uh, society. But on the Crusades, they've encountered the Arab world where there are spices for the foods. There's silk instead of that rough wool. Ooh, we'd like some of those in our family. 
it, it's a meeting of cultures in which there's a, a new desire for some of the kinds of things they had never imagined before. How are you going to get them? You've got to trade for them. So there's an impetus toward uh, cities and trade because those are not things that you can get hold of close by. So the beginnings of uh, development of urban communities uh, in an urban community, there's going to be specialization. People do different kinds of things. Somebody does baking all the time. Somebody does cobbling all the time. Not like out on the medieval uh, manor where, oh, yes, all right, we need a new pair of shoes. All right, this person can make shoes. We'll do so. But the rest of the time, he's farming uh, or so forth. In the cities, you have specializations, expertise. So you're getting more multiple levels of society. You're getting a more diverse society. And also, now there's an importance in being able to read and write your own vernacular. Because how are you going to carry out your business with people way over yonder if you can't communicate with them? You can't send somebody to say everything you want said. I mean, you could, but it would be very expensive. What you do is you learn to read and write your own vernacular. So now education includes uh, a new interest, a new value for actual reading and writing. And you've got lots of uh, lay people in cities beginning to read and write. Furthermore, uh, you've also got the uh, technical revolution of print. Chinese had discovered it long before, of course, but in Europe, movable type is not uh, dis discovered, introduced until the middle of the 15th century. That means now we can have multiple copies of these texts. There are more people can read because there's now more to read. Uh, stop and think how much of the Bible or anything else you would have if you had to copy it all out with a quill. There's good chunks of it I think I could do without. I mean, I might not include all the begats and all the rest of it. But now you can have multiple copies of exactly the same thing. So there's more incentive to read. There's more interest in it. Um, and there's going to be a tool for communicating new ideas way across Europe. Luther didn't have any idea when he posted the 30, 91 theses, 30, 95 theses on the 31st, that anybody except his colleagues would ever hear about them. Somebody got hold of them and thought, ha, huh, I bet some other people would be interested. Went down and printed them. And they were scattered all over the place. He had no intention of doing that. But other people got hold of them and thought, oh, now this is exciting. They didn't interpret it necessarily the way he was going to interpret it, but that didn't matter as far as they were concerned. It said something to them. It provided a new idea. So print made it possible to spread all kinds of heretical ideas very quickly. So you've got a whole bunch of things happening in Europe uh, that provide a really rich and exciting and um, in some ways changed environment. It, this is true over the last, uh, I mean, it, it's not all of a sudden this happens 15, 17, this suddenly happens. No, all of this has been going on for a century, two centuries in the case of, of the reforming movements, uh, you know, 50 years in the case of print, uh, a whole uh, several hundred years in the case of humanist movements and intellectual changes. But you've got a, a, communi a, a European society which is now no longer entirely static. It's actually developing differences, uh, we might say progressing. Uh, again, I don't want to make that always a, a, it's going up and up, better and better and better. But movement, change, which is also threatening and scary, but exciting. It depends on how you take it. 
In that context, then, it was the reformations, as we call them, are happening. So what are some of the legacies? And I've, this is a really hard thing for me to, to narrow down, but I'm going to try to point to some of the things which are key aspects of what's happening uh, religiously, which have continued to have an impact on us. And one of them is focusing on the believer, the priesthood of believer and personal faith. Please don't, understand, please don't read this as individualism, just you know, going off by myself to be a Christian. But there is a new sense of personal responsibility. There's a new sense of a personal faith. The priest cannot be the one who does my religion for me. I mean, remember, that's a, that's a, a gross exaggeration of what, people, what the clergy wanted. But it was, in the final analysis, uh, if you were no, not able to uh, learn very well, you could say, I believe what the church believes. And that was considered sufficient for your salvation. Participate in the sacraments, believe. You can't describe it, but you believe what the church believes. One of the things that changes, and this is not just among those who break with Rome. It's also true among, uh, within the Roman church, although less emphatic because they don't go with the priesthood of believers. There's a strong sense of a personal engagement, a personal, uh, I don't want to say decision, but a, a, a fact that I am engaged as myself. Nobody else can do it for me. And this comes through in a faction that is uh, really contrary to the medieval understanding, which is the priesthood of believers. Because in the uh, Catholic Church, in the traditional understanding of faith, you always need the priest to be the mediator, at least for the sacraments. The sacraments were the means of grace. You did not have access to any of them except baptism or possibly marriage, uh, but those were not, baptism was essential for salvation. But after you grew up, you needed penance and mass and extreme unction, and the only person you could get them from was an ordained priest. One of the things that all of those who break with Rome say we are saved by faith. Each one of us is a, therefore a priest. We each one have the right of intercession. We each one can go directly to God. My personal faith is my passport, if you want to put it that way, to addressing God directly. This does not mean that there hadn't been faith or direct prayer among uh, other uh, believers before. But that was not the way that you got grace. Now, with the understanding that grace and faith are intertwined in this immediately personal way, there's a greater responsibility on the part of each person. And there's a, the fruit of that in the sense that you could now do without any priest. The only necessary priest is Jesus Christ. So there's a leveling of uh, Christian uh, of Christians uh, as members of the church, as the priesthood of believers. There's also a change in the ideal and location of holiness. Uh, the traditional understanding is that there are holy people and things and places and times, and there are ordinary ones. Remember, all of these are Christian. It's not a case of Christian versus non-Christian. It's a case of two uh, stat forms of status, two levels within the Christian church. They're the priests, monks, and nuns, and then they're ordinary Christians. They're the uh, 
churches and shrines, and then there's your home. There are relics, and there are your own pots and pans. There are saints' days uh, and ordinary work days. So where you find closeness to God is pretty clearly defined. It's, it's set, set out pretty well. But a lot of these newly literate lay people, and remember they're also, they are also the source from which reforming clergy come, reforming within the Catholic Church, the priests and people, higher level of education among the Christian population, more and more of them are saying, I don't see the holy people acting holy. Now, I know that they are supposed to be. I know that the sacraments are considered valid if they're done by the properly ordained person. But I'm not so sure about that. So there's coming to be a disconnect or a tension, a destabilizing of the sense of sureness about the place of the holy, the accessibility of the holy. This is, you know, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. Um, the Anabaptist response to this is to say, yes, there's holy and there's profane, and this is Christian and non-Christian. Our churches are made up of all the elect, and outside there's only the uh, profane. Now, within our church, we don't distinguish. There's not any particular place or time or thing that's more holy or person that's more holy than another. So, but we've got a clear sense that holiness is our church, and outside is not. That's a pretty easy for us to follow. What Protestants do with this, though, is different. Protestants say justification by faith alone, grace alone. What they mean by this, um, can I have a time check? It's the clock, 10.40. 10.40, okay, all right, yeah, all right, then I'm not going to be able to do this. Okay, never mind. Uh, justification by faith alone, grace alone. Uh, what happens if you are, if you understand yourself to be justified, that is made right, accepted by God, by the sheer gift of God's grace enabling you, then your salvation is a gift. It also means that holiness is wherever that grace is, and where it's not is not holy. But none of us are purely holy. Luther's phrase, we're all redeemed sinners. So we are holy insofar as we are in relationship with God, but we are not holy insofar as we are still sinners. Maybe a better way of saying this, what happens is that location of holiness and the definition now runs through everything because it's relational, not identified with a place or a person or you, you can't divide it up nicely. So for example, a barn is in a sense not holy if the cattle are there. But it's holy when you're holding church there. This messes things up. One thing that happens is that Protestants then, in a sense, sacralize everything. Everything is holy insofar as it's dedicated to God. And everything is profane insofar as it's not dedicated to God. But this is not nearly a nice, neat, tidy way of dividing up. Everybody wants to know, OK, this is a holy place, and this one's not. I mean, that's the way we work. So you've got here uh, an, a, a messing up of the sense about what is holy. You've also got change in the character of, of theology, I mean, of, of knowledge and its relationship to salvation. And I stuck in something that's not on your 
outline, I changed my mind about putting something in. Ritual and salvation. We all know the story of Isaac and uh, his sons. Uh, Jacob dresses up like Esau and comes to Isaac to get the blessing. Now, think about it. Isaac's blessing to Jacob works even though it's the wrong person, even though Isaac didn't intend it to. That really doesn't make sense to us. In a sense, though, what we're saying is that a ritual of blessing has its own efficaciousness just by being done. Rituals have power. Rituals are effective. That's the whole sense through most of history. What comes to be happen what happens now, though, is a gradual sense of destabilization about the confidence in rituals. It's just a point to that um, you're supposed to go to a properly ordained priest for uh, confession for your penance, but by the latter Middle Ages, people were saying, "Oh, go find a good priest to do your confession." Now, in principle, any priest was equally qualified, but they're beginning to make distinctions. There's a sense in which the um, trust in that ritual, that salvific ritual, is coming undone a little bit. And one of the things that's also happening is there's a greater emphasis then on knowledge rather than just ritual. So it's a sense that you need to understand uh, more. This is true Catholic Church as well. In the 15th century, the, the priests are trying desperately to teach people to understand their faith better. So all of this reforming movement, uh, well, from the 14th century on, really, there's a strong emphasis on people actually understanding more about their faith. What happens with those who break with Rome, though, is that they say what you need to understand is Bible. It's no longer enough to t have the priest explain the difference between uh, virtues and vices and telling you the saints' stories because you're supposed to imitate them. Now you're supposed to concentrate what you're supposed to know. The importance of knowledge is strongly emphasized, uh, and there's a specific character of that knowledge uh, for those who break with Rome. And the means of teaching. Well, here you've got divisions with the people who break with Rome. Uh, for those we, Anabaptists, they're not humanists. They are not interested in learning the, going back to the original sources. They don't care about learning Greek or Hebrew. Uh, the Bible, as they have it, is that German, that French, and that English, whatever it is in front of them. That's real Bible. They're trusting, remember, they're the ones who want to recreate Acts. They're trusting the Holy Spirit to enable them to understand that text in front of them that they know how to read, and it will recreate, they'll be able to restore the church. Protestants, on the other hand, they haven't given up on the church. Remember, they still think that there's real continuity there. But what they want to do is reform it. What they want to reform then is they're humanists. They want to go back and read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. They want to learn what it actually says because that will be the kind of knowledge that they understand to be salvific. There's a much stronger focus then on their understanding. And, of course, because all of these differences, people begin to divide up, uh, split. Uh, there are uh, lots of ways in which when they put together their Reformed Church, it does not look like the Reformed Church of somebody else or the Restored Church. So you've got a variety of things in common, like the priesthood of believers, the uh, desire for a holy church, uh, the uh, effort to uh, understand faith better, but you've got different 
division, I mean, you've got divisions in terms of how each of those plays out. I wanted to add just one thing on some reflections that some of the challenges of the legacies. Personal faith, priesthood of believers, has an enormously important uh, role in people's understanding of their uh, own responsibility before God and their own relationship with God. But if you push it forward past the enlightenment, this um, me and my Bible, me and my God, moves into a much more individualistic perspective. So you could say that what one of the things that happens, and I'm not saying this is a, a good legacy, I'm not even saying that it was an, certainly wasn't intended one, but one of the things that happens through this progression of history when things, religious uh, movements encounter the changing society around them is that the consequences of some of the things that are uh, marvelous insights become uh, shaped in other ways. Another one, uh, this emphasis on knowing on scripture, on the uh, scripture alone, on understanding the biblical faith, that can, if you push it far enough, that can turn into formalism. All I need to do is know what the Bible says. It doesn't matter how my heart is engaged. Uh, another one, if you push the, uh, the sacralization, the holiness perspective far enough, actually, if you, if you say that all is holy because it's in God's presence, and then you eliminate God, you've got everything secularized. So I've come to the end of my time, and you've been very, very patient. But does that give you some sense of, of the messiness of this, the richness, the messiness? But it, it's in history because that's where we live and live.